Section 16 of The Golden Bough, Part 1, The Magic Art and the Evolution of Kings, Volume 1, by James Fraser. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Leon Harvey. Chapter 7, Incarnate Human Gods, Part 2. Human Gods in Southeast Africa. An early Portuguese historian informs us that the Quetive, or King of Sofala in southeast Africa, is a woolly-haired Kaffir, a heathen who adores nothing whatever, has no knowledge of God. On the contrary, he esteems himself the God of all his lands, and is so looked upon and reverenced by his subjects. When they suffer necessity or scarcity, they have recourse to the king, firmly believing that he can give them all that they desire or have need of, and can obtain anything from his dead predecessors with whom they believe that he holds converse. For this reason they ask the king to give them rain when it is required, and other favourable weather for their harvest, and in coming to ask for any of these things, they bring him valuable presents, which the king accepts, bidding them return to their homes, and he will be careful to grant their petitions. They are such barbarians that, though they see how often the king does not give them what they ask for, they are not undeceived but make him still great offerings. And many days are spent in these comings and goings until the weather turns to rain and the Kafirs are satisfied, believing that the king did not grant their request until he had been well bribed and importuned, as he himself affirms, in order to maintain them in their error. The Zimbas, or more Zimbas, are among people of southeastern Africa who not adore idols or recognize any god, but instead they venerate and honor their king whom they regard as a divinity, and they say he is the greatest and best in the world. The said king says of himself that he alone is God of the earth, of which reason, if it rains, when he does not wish to do so, or is too hot, he shoots arrows at the sky for not obeying him. Amongst the Barots, a tribe on the upper Zambezi, there is an old but waning belief that a chief is a demigod, and in heavy thunderstorms the Barots flock to the chief's yard for protection from the lightning. I have been greatly distressed at seeing them fall on their knees before the chief, entreating him to open the water-pots of heaven and send rain upon their gardens. The king's servants declare themselves to be invincible because they are the servants of God, meaning the king. Human Gods in South Africa The Marais of South Africa have a spiritual head to whom they ascribe supernatural powers, referring him as a prophet and designating him by the name Chisumpe. Besides a considerable territory which he owns and rules, he receives tribute from all, even from the king, Unde. They believe that this being is invisible and immortal, and they consult him as an oracle, in which case he makes himself heard. He is personified by a famo e Chisumpe, that is, by an intimate of the Chisump, whose dignity is hereditary, and he was revered exactly like the supposed Chisump, with whom he is naturally identical. As he names his own successor, disputes as to succession do not arise. His oracles are as unintelligible and ambiguous as can well be imagined. He derives great profit from impostors of both sexes who purchase the gift of soothsaying from him. In the settlement, Lucinda, or the Chisump, where are women who the people regard as his wives, but who, according to the universal belief, cannot bear children. If these women are convicted of an offence with a man, they are burnt along with the partner of their guilt. 
the Mashona of Southern Africa informed their bishop that they had once had a god, but that the Matabils had driven him away. This last was in reference to a curious custom in some villages of keeping a man they called their god. He seemed to be consulted by the people and had presents given to him. There was one in a village belonging to a chief, Magondi, in the old days. We were asked not to fire off any guns near the village, or we should frighten him away. This Mashona god was formerly bound to render an annual tribute to the king of the Matabels in the shape of four black oxen and one dance. A missionary has seen and described the deity discharging the latter part of his duty in front of the royal hut. For three mortal hours, without a break to the banging of a tambourine, the click of cassettes, and the drone of a monotonous song, the swarthy god engaged in a frenzied dance, crouching on his arms like a trailer, sweating like a pig, and bounding about with an agility which testified to the strength and elasticity of his divine legs. Human Gods of the Makalukas In the Makalaka hills to the west of Mantabela land, the natives all acknowledge there dwells a god whom they name Nagwali, much worshipped by the bushmen of the Makalukas, and feared even by the Matabeli. Even Lo Bengula paid tribute and sent presents to him often. This individual has been seen only a few of those who live close by, and who doubtless profit by the numberless offerings made to this strange being. But the god never dies, and the position is supposed to be hereditary in the one family who are the intermediaries for the connection between the Wali and the outer world. This Makalaka god resides in the depth of a cave in the midst of a labyrinth. Nobody has ever seen him, but he has sons and daughters, who are priests and priestesses, and dwell in the neighbourhood of the grotto. It is rather odd that not long ago three sons of this god were put to death by common mortals for having stolen wheat from the king. Lobengula probably thought that they should practice justice even more strictly than other folk. In the middle of the cavern, they say, there is a shaft, very deep and very black. From this gulf there issue from time to time terrible noises like the crash of thunder. On the edge of the abyss the worshippers tremblingly lay flesh and wheat, fowls, cakes and other presents to appease the hunger of the dreadful god and secure his favour. After making this offering, the poor supplicants declare aloud their wishes and the object of their application. They ask to know hidden things, future events, the names of those who have cast a spell on them, and issue of such and such an enterprise. After some moments of profound silence, there are heard, amid the crash of subterranean thunder, inarticulate sounds, strange broken words, of which it is hard to make out the sense, and which the medicine men, Amazizis, who are hand and glove with the makers of thunder, explain to these credulous devotees. Human Gods in Central and East Africa The Baganda of Central Africa believed in a god of Lake Nyanza, who sometimes took up his abode in a man or woman. The incarnate god was much feared by all the people, including the king and the chiefs. When the mystery of incarnation had taken place, the man, or rather the god, removed about a mile and a half from the margin of the lake, and there awaited the appearance of the new moon, before he engaged his sacred duties. From the moment that the crescent moon appeared faintly in the sky, the king and all his subjects were at the command of the divine man, or Luber, God, as he was called, who reigned supreme not only in matters of faith and ritual, but also in questions of war and state policy. He was consulted as an oracle. By his words he could inflict or heal sickness, withhold rain and cause famine. Large presents were made to him when his advice was sought. The chief of Ura, a large region of the west of Lake Tanganyika, 
arrogates to himself divine honours and power and pretends to abstain from food for days without feeling its necessity and indeed declares that as a god he is altogether above required food and only eats drinks and smokes for the pleasure it affords him among the gellers when a woman grows tired of the cares of housekeeping she begins to talk incoherently and to demean herself extravagantly this is a sign of the descent of the holy spirit callow upon her immediately her husband prostrates himself and adores her she ceases to bear the humble title of wife and is called lord domestic duties have no further claim on her and her will is a divine law human gods in west africa the king of leongo is honoured by his people as though he were a god and he is called sambi and pango which mean god they believe that he can let them have rain when he likes and once a year in december which is the time they want rain the people come to beg of him to grant it to them on this occasion the king standing on his throne shoots an arrow into the air which is supposed to bring on rain much the same is said of the king of mombasa down to a few years ago when his spiritual reign on earth was brought to an abrupt end by the carnal weapons of english marines and blue jackets the king of benin was the chief object of worship in his dominions he occupies a higher post here than the pope does in catholic europe for he is not only god's vicegerent upon earth but a god himself whose subjects both obey and adore him as such although i believe their adoration to arise rather from fear than love the king of ida told the english officers of the niger expedition god made me after his own image i am all the same as god and he appointed me a king in the language of the hoes an uwe tribe of tongaland the word for god is mo and the great god is maoga they personify the blessing of god and say that the great god dwells with a rich man from the personification of the divine blessing to the deification of the man himself the step is not a long one and as a matter of fact it is taken the hoes know men in whose life are to be seen so many resemblances to the great god and they call them simply mao in the neighbourhood of ho there lived a good many years ago a man who enjoyed an extraordinary reputation to the whole of the neighbourhood and who accordingly named himself wuwo that is more than the others the people actually paid him divine honours not indeed in the sense that they sacrificed to him but in the sense that they followed his words absolutely they worked on the fields and brought him rich presents on the coast there lived a respectful old chief who called himself mao he was richer than all the other chiefs and the inhabitants of twenty-seven towns rendered him unconditional obedience in the circumstance that he was richer and more honoured than all the other chiefs he saw his resemblance to the deity divinity of kings and chiefs in madagascar among the hovers and other tribes of madagascar there is said to be a deep sense of the divinity of kings and down to the acceptance of christianity by the late queen the hover sovereigns were regularly termed the visible god andrea marin hitra hitomasu and other terms of similar import were also applied to them the chiefs of the betselo in madagascar are considered as far above the common people and are looked upon almost as if they were gods but the chiefs are supposed to have power as regards the words they utter not however merely the power which a king possesses but the power like that of god a power which works of itself on account of its inherited virtue and not power exerted through soldiers and strong servants the ampadzaka manzaka or sovereign whom the sakalava of the north often call also zanhari and tani god on earth is surrounded by them with a veneration which resembles idolatry 
and the vulgar are simple enough to attribute the creation of the world to his ancestors the different parts of his body and his least actions are described by nouns and verbs which are foreign to the ordinary language forming a separate vocabulary called vula fali sacred words or vula in ampanzaka princely words person and the goods of the ampanzaka mansaka are fali sacred divining kings in the malay region the theory of the real divinity of a king is said to be held strongly in the malay region not only is the king's person considered sacred but the sanctity of his body is supposed to communicate itself to his regalia and to slay those who break the royal taboos miraculous power is attributed to regalia thus it is firmly believed that any one who seriously offends the royal person who imitates or touches even for a moment the chief objects of the regalia or who wrongfully makes use of the ensign or privileges of royalty will be kena dolat that is struck dead by a sort of electric discharge of that divine power which the malays suppose to reside in the king's person and to which they give the name of dolat or sanzity the regalia of every petty malay state is believed to be endowed with supernatural powers and we are told the extraordinary strength of the malay belief in the supernatural powers of the regalia of their sovereigns can only be thoroughly realized after a study of their romances in which their kings are credited with all the attributes of inferior gods whose birth as indeed every subsequent act of their afterlife is attended by the most amazing prodigies divining kings and men in the east indies among the badars of central sumatra there is a prince who bears the hereditary title of singa margaranja and is worshipped as a deity he reigns over bakara a village on the southwestern shore of lake toba but his worship is diffused among the tribes both near and far all sorts of strange stories are told of him it is said that he was seven years in his mother's womb and thus came into the world a seven-year-old child that he has a black hairy tongue the sight of which is fatal so that in speaking he keeps his mouth as nearly shut as possible and gives all his orders in writing sometimes he remains seven months out eating or sleeps for three months together he can make the sun to shine or the rain to fall at his pleasure hence the people pray to him for a good harvest and worshippers hastened to Bakara from all sides with offerings in the hope of thereby securing his miraculous aid wherever he goes the gongs are solemnly beaten and the public peace may not be broken he is said to eat neither pork nor dog's flesh the batters used to cherish a superstitious veneration for the sultan of minankabu and showed a blind submission to his relations and emissaries real or pretended when these persons appeared among them for the purpose of levying contributions even when insulted and put in fear of their lives they made no attempt at resistance for they believed that their affairs would never prosper that their rights would be blighted and the buffaloes die and they would remain under a sort of spell if they offended these sacred messengers in the kingdom of luwu the great majority of the people have never seen the king and they believe that were they to see him their belly would swell up and they would die on the spot the farther you go from the capital the more firmly rooted is this belief in the time of public calamity as during war or pestilence some of the maluka islanders here to celebrate a festival of heaven if no good result followed they bought a slave took him in the next festival to the place of sacrifice and set him on a raised place under a certain bamboo tree this tree represented heaven and had been honoured as its image as former festivals the portion of the sacrifice which had previously been offered to heaven was now given to the slave who had and drank it in the name instead of heaven henceforth he was well treated 
kept for the festivals of heaven and employed to represent heaven and receive the offerings in his name every alfour village of northern seram has usually six priests of whom the most intelligent discharges the duties of high priest this man is the most powerful person in the village all the inhabitants even the regent are subject to him and must do his bidding the common herd regard him as a higher being a sort of demigod he aims at surrounding himself with an atmosphere of mystery and for this purpose lives in great seclusion generally in the council house of the village where he conceals himself from vulgar eyes behind a screen or partition however in this case the god seems to be in process of incubation rather than full-fledged divine kings in burma and siam a peculiarly bloodthirsty monarch of burma by name bodan session whose very countenance reflected the inbred ferocity of his nature and under whose reign more victims perished by the executioner than by the common enemy conceived the notion that he was something more than mortal and that this high distinction had been granted him as a reward for his numerous good works accordingly he laid aside the title of king and had to make it himself a god with this view and in imitation of buddha who before being advanced to the rank of a divinity had quitted his royal palace and seraglio and retired from the world bodan sashan withdrew from his palace to an immense pagoda the largest in the empire which he had been engaged in constructing for many years here he held conferences with the most learned monks in which he sought to persuade them that the five thousand years assigned for the observance of the law of buddha were now elapsed and that he himself was the god who was destined to appear after that period and to abolish the old law by substituting his own but to his great mortification many of the monks undertook to demonstrate the contrary and this disappointment combined with his love of power and his impatience under the restraints of an ascetic life quickly disabused him of his imaginary godhead and drove him back to his palace and his harem divinity of the king of siam the king of siam is venerated equally with the divinity his subjects ought not to look him in the face they prostrate themselves before him when he passes and appear before him on his knees their elbows resting on the ground there is a special language devoted to his sacred person and attributes and it must be used by all who speak to or of him even the natives have difficulty in mastering this peculiar vocabulary the hairs of the monarch's head the soles of his feet the breadth of his body indeed every single detail of his person both outward and inward have particular names when he eats or drinks sleeps or walks a special word indicates that these acts have been performed by the sovereign and such words cannot possibly be applied to the acts of any other person whatever there is no word in the siamese language by which any creature of higher rank or greater dignity than a monarch can be described and the missionaries when they speak of god are forced to use the native word for king divine men in tonquin in tonquin every village chooses its guardian spirit often the form of an animal as a dog tiger cat or serpent sometimes a living person is selected as patron divinity thus a beggar persuaded the people of a village that he was their guardian spirit so they loaded him with honours and entertained him with their best divine head of the babites at the present day the head of the great persian sect of the babites abbas effendi by name resides at Acre in syria and is held by frenchmen russians and americans especially by rich american ladies to be an incarnation of god himself the late professor s i curtis of chicago had the honour of dining with the master as he is invariably called by his followers 
when the incarnation expressed a kindly hope that he might have the pleasure of drinking tea with a professor in the kingdom of heaven human gods in india but perhaps no country in the world has been so prolific of human gods as india nowhere has the divine grace been poured out in a more liberal measure on all classes of society from kings down to milkmen divine dairymen among the todas thus among the todas a pastoral people of the Nangari hills of southern india the dairy is a sanctuary and the milkmen who attend to it has been described as a god on being asked whether the todas salute the sun one of these divine milkmen replied these poor fellows do so but i tapping his chest i a god why should i salute the sun every one even his own father prostrates himself before the milkman and no one would dare to refuse him anything no human being except another milkman may touch him and he gives oracles to all who consult him speaking with the voice of a god kings and brahmins considered as gods in india further in india every king is regarded as little short of a present god the hindu law book of manu goes farther and says that even an infant king must not be despised from an idea that he is a mere mortal for he is a great deity in human form as to the brahmins it is laid down in the same treatise that a brahmin be he ignorant or learned is a great divinity just as the fire whether carried forth for the performance of a burnt oblation or not carried forth is a great divinity further it is said that though brahmins employ themselves in all sorts of mean occupations they must be honoured in every way for each of them is a very great deity in another ancient hindu book we read that verily there are two kinds of gods for indeed the gods are the gods and the brahmins who have studied and teached sacred law are the human gods the sacrifice of these is divided into two kinds oblations constitute the sacrifice to the gods and gifts to the priests that to the human gods the brahmins who have studied and teach sacred law the spiritual power of a brahmin priest is described as unbounded his anger is as terrible as that of the gods his blessing makes rich his curse withers nay more he is himself actually worshipped as a god no marvel no prodigy in nature is believed to be beyond the limits of his power to accomplish if the priest were to threaten to bring down the sun from the sky or arrest it in its daily course in the heavens no villager would for a moment doubt his ability to do so as to the mandras or sacred texts by means of which the brahmins exercise their miraculous powers there is a saying everywhere current in india the whole universe is subject to the gods the gods are subject to the mantras the mantras to the brahmins therefore the brahmins are our gods other human gods in india there is said to have been a sect in orissa some years ago who worshipped the late queen victoria in her lifetime as their chief divinity and to this day in india all living persons remarkable for great strength or valour or for supposed miraculous power run the risk of being worshipped as gods thus a sect in the punjab worshipped a deity whom they called nicholson this nicholson was no other than the redoubted general nicholson and nothing that this general could do or say damped the ardour of his adorers the more he punished them the greater grew the religious awe with which they worshipped him at Benares a few years ago, a celebrated deity was incarnate in the person of a Hindu gentleman who rejoiced in the euphonious name Swami Baskaranandaj Saraswati and looked uncommonly like the late Cardinal Manning, only more ingenious. His eyes beamed with kindly human interest, and he took what is described as an innocent pleasure in the divine honours paid him by his confiding worshippers. 
Lingayat priests worshipped as gods. The Lingayats are the Unitarians of Hinduism, for they believe in only one god, Siva, rejecting the other two persons of the Hindu trinity. Yet they esteem the Jangam, or priest, as superior even to the deity. They pay homage to the Jangam first, and to Siva afterwards. The Jangam is regarded as an incarnation of the deity. In practice, the Jangam is placed first, and as stated above, is worshipped as God upon earth. In 1900, a hillman in Visakapatam gave out that he was an incarnate god and his claims to divinity were accepted by a following of 5,000 people who, when a sceptical government sent an armed force to suppress the movement which threatened political trouble, testified to the faith that was in them by resisting even to the shedding of the blood. Two policemen who refused to bow the knee to the new god were knocked on the head. However, in the scuffle, the deity himself was arrested and laid by the heels in jail where he died, just like a common mortal. Human Incarnations of the Elephant-Headed God Ganpati At Chinchfad, a small town about ten miles from Pune in western India, there lives a family of whom one in each generation is believed by a large portion of the Manratas to be an incarnation of the Elephant-Headed God Ganpati. That celebrated deity was first made flesh about the year 1640 in the person of a Brahmin of Pune by name Orapa Gosin, who sought to work out his salvation by abstinence, mortification, and prayer. His pity had its reward. The God himself appeared to him in a vision of the night, and promised that a portion of his, that is, of Gampati's Holy Spirit, should abide with him, and with his seed, after him even to the seventh generation. The divine promise was fulfilled. Seven successive incarnations, transmitted from father to son, manifested the light of Gampati to a dark world. The last of the direct line, a heavy-looking god with very weak eyes, died in the year 1810, but the cause of truth was too sacred, and the value of the church property too considerable to allow the Brahmins to contemplate with equanimity the unspeakable loss that would be sustained by a world which knew not Ganpati. Accordingly, they sought and found a holy vessel in whom the divine spirit of the master had, had revealed itself anew, and the revelation had been happily continued in an unbroken succession of vessels from that time to this. But a mysterious law of spiritual economy, whose operation in the history of religion we may deplore, though we cannot alter, has decreed that the miracles wrought by the God-man in these degenerate days cannot compare with those which were wrought by his predecessors in days gone by, and it is even reported that the only sign vouchsafed by him to the present generation of vipers is a miracle of feeding the multitude whom he annually entertains to dinner at Chinchvad. Worship of the Maharajas as incarnations of Krishna. A Hindu sect, which has many representatives in Bombay and central India, holds that spiritual chiefs, or Maharajas as they are called, are representatives or even actual incarnations on earth of the god Krishna. Hence in the temples, where the Maharajas do homage to the idols, men and women do homage to the Maharajas, prostrating themselves at their feet, offering them incense, fruits and flowers, and waving lights before them as the Maharajas themselves do before the images of the gods. One mode of worshipping Krishna is by swinging his images in swings. Hence, in every district presided over by a Maharaja, women are wont to worship not Krishna, but the Maharaja by swinging him in pendulous seats. The leavings of his food, the dust on which he treads, the water in which his dirty linen is washed, are all equally swallowed by his devotees who worship his wooden shoes and prostrate themselves before his seat and his painted portraits. And as Krishna looks down from heaven with most favour on such as minister 
to the wants of his successors and vicars on earth. A peculiar rite called self-devotion has been instituted, whereby his faithful worshippers make over their bodies, their souls, and what is perhaps still more important, their worldly substance to his adorable incarnations, and women are taught to believe that the highest bliss for themselves and their families is to be attained by yielding themselves to the embrace of those beings in whom the divine nature mysteriously coexists with the form and even the appetites of true humanity. Pretenders to divinity among Christians Christianity itself has not uniformly escaped the taint of these unhappy delusions. Indeed, it has often been sullied by the extravagances of vain pretenders to a divinity equal to or even surpassing that of its great founder. In the second century, Montanus the Phrygian claimed to be the incarnate trinity, uniting in his single person God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Nor is this an isolated case, the exorbitant pretension of a single ill-balanced mind. From the earliest times down to the present day, many sects have believed that Christ, nay God himself, is incarnate in every fully initiated Christian, and they have carried this belief to its logical conclusion by adoring each other. Tertullian records that this was done by his fellow Christians at Carthage in the second century. The disciple St. Columba worshipped him as an embodiment of Christ, and in the eighth century, Elipandus of Toledo spoke of Christ as a god among gods, meaning that all believers were gods just as truly as Jesus himself. The adoration of each other was customary among the Albigenses, and is noted hundreds of times in the records of the Inquisition at Toulouse in the early part of the 14th century. It is still practiced by the Paulicians of Armenia and the Bogomiles about Moscow. The Paulicians, indeed, presumed to justify their faith, if not their practice, by the authority of St. Paul, who said, It is not I that speak, but Christ that dwelleth in me. Hence the members of this Russian sect are known as the Christs. Among them, men and women alike take upon themselves the calling of teachers and prophets, and in this character they lead a strict, ascetic life, refrain from the most ordinary and innocent pleasures, exhaust themselves by long fasting and wild ecstatic religious exercises, and a poor marriage. Out of the excitement caused by their supposed holiness and inspiration, they call themselves not only teachers and prophets, but also saviors, redeemers, Christs, mothers of God. Generally speaking, they call themselves simply gods, and pray to each other as to real gods and living Christs or Madonnas. Brethren and Sisters of the Free Spirit In the 13th century, there arose a set called the Brethren and Sisters of the Free Spirit, who held that by long and assiduous contemplation any man might be united to the deity in an ineffallible manner and become one with the source and parent of all living things, and that he, who had thus ascended to God and been absorbed in this beatific essence, actually formed part of the Godhead, was a son of God in the same sense and manner with Christ himself, and enjoyed thereby a glorious immunity from the trammels of all laws human and divine. Inwardly transported by this blissful persuasion, though outwardly presenting in their aspects and manners a shocking air of lunacy and distraction, the sectaries roamed from place to place, attired the most fantastic apparel and begging their bread with wild shouts and clamour, spurning indignantly every kind of honest labour and industry as an obstacle to divine contemplation and to the ascent of the soul towards the Father of Spirits. In all their excursions they were followed by women with whom they lived on terms of the closest familiarity. Those of them who conceived they had made the greatest proficiency in the high spiritual life dispensed with the use of clothes altogether in their assemblies, looking upon decency and modesty as marks of inward corruption, characteristics of a soul that still groveled under the dominion of the flesh and had not yet been elevated into communion with the divine spirit, its centre and source. 
Sometimes their progress towards the mystic communion was accelerated by the Inquisition, and they expired in the flames not merely with an uncloudy serenity, but with the most triumphant feelings of cheerfulness and joy. Incarnation of the Holy Ghost In the same century, a Bohemian woman named Wilhelmina, whose head had been turned by brooding over some crazy predictions about a coming age of the Holy Ghost, persuaded herself and many people besides that the Holy Ghost had actually become incarnate in her person for the salvation of a great part of mankind. She died in Milan in the year 1281, in the most fragrant odour of sanctity, and her memory was held in the highest veneration by a numerous following, and even honoured with religious worship both public and private. Modern Incarnations of Jesus Christ About the year 1830, there appeared in one of the states of the American Union bordering on Kentucky, an impostor who declared that he was the Son of God, the Saviour of mankind, and that he had reappeared on earth to recall the impious, the unbelieving, and sinners to their duty. He protested that if they did not mend their ways within a certain time, he would give the signal, and in a moment the world would crumble to ruins. These extravagant pretensions were received with favour even by persons of wealth and positions in society. At last a German humbly besought the new Messiah to announce the dreadful catastrophe to his fellow countrymen in the German language, as they did not understand English, and a sin of pity that they should be damned merely on that account. The would-be saviour, in reply, confessed with great candour that he did not know German. What? retorted the German. You, the son of God, and don't speak all languages, and don't even know German? Come, come, you are a knave, a hypocrite, and a madman. Bedlam is the place for you. The spectators laughed and went away, ashamed of their credulity. About thirty years ago, a new sect was founded at Patiala, in the Punjab, by a wretched creature named Hakim Sin, who lived in extreme poverty and filth gave himself out to be a reincarnation of Jesus Christ, and offered to baptise the missionaries who attempted to argue with him. He proposed, shortly, to destroy the British government and to convert and conquer the world. His gospel was accepted by 4,000 believers in his immediate neighbourhood. Cases like these verge on, neither do cross, the wavering and uncertain line which divides the raptures of religion from insanity. Transmigrations of Human Deities Sometimes at the death of the human incarnation, the divine spirit transmigrates into another man. In the kingdom of Kaffa in eastern Africa, the heathen part of the people worship a spirit called Diosu, of whom they offer prayer and sacrifice, and whom they invoke on all important occasions. This spirit is incarnate in the grand magician or pope, a person of great wealth and influence, ranking almost with the king and wielding the spiritual as the king wields the temporal power. It happened that shortly before the arrival of a Christian missionary in the kingdom, this African pope died, and the priests, fearing lest the missionary might assume the position vacated by the diseased prelate, declared that the dios had passed into the king, who henceforth united the spiritual with the temporal power, reigned as God and king. Before beginning to work at the salt pans in a Laozin village, the workmen often sacrificed to a divinity of the salt pans. This divinity is incarnate in a woman and transmigrates at her death into another woman. In Bhutan, the spiritual head of the government is a dignitary called the Dharma Raja, who is supposed to be a perpetual incarnation of the deity. At his death, the new incarnate god shows himself in an infant by the refusal of his mother's milk and a preference for that of a cow. Transmigrations of the Divine Lamas the Buddhist Tartars believe in a great number of living Buddhas who officiate as Grand Lamas at the head of the most important monasteries. 
and one of these grand lamas dies his disciples do not sorrow for they know that he will soon reappear being born in the form of an infant their only anxiety is to discover the place of his birth if at this time they see a rainbow they take it as a sign sent them by the departed lama to guide them to his cradle sometimes the divine infant himself reveals his identity i am the grand lama he says the living buddha of such and such a temple take me to my old monastery i am its immortal head in whatever way the birthplace of the buddha is revealed whether by the buddha's own avowal or by the sign in the sky tents are struck and the joyful pilgrims often headed by the king or one of the most illustrious of the royal family set forth to find and bring home the infant god generally he is born in tibet the holy land and to reach him the caravan is often traverse the most frightful deserts when at last they find the child they fall down and worship him before however he is acknowledged as a grand lama whom they seek he must satisfy them of his identity he is asked the name of the monastery of which he claims to be the head how far off it is and how many monks live in it he must also describe the habits of the deceased grand lama and the manner of his death then various articles as prayer books teapots and cups are placed before him and he has to point out those used by himself in his previous life if he does so without a mistake his claims are admitted and he is conducted in triumph to the monastery at the head of all the lamas is the dalai lama of lhasa the rome of tibet divinity of the grand lama of lhasa he is regarded as a living god and at death his divine and immortal spirit is born again in a child according to some accounts the mode of discovering the dalai lama is similar to the method already described of discovering an ordinary grand lama other accounts speak of an election by drawing lots from a golden jar wherever he is born the trees and plants put forth green leaves at his bidding flowers bloom and springs of water rise and his presence diffuses heavenly blessings his palace stands on a commanding height his gilded cupolas are seen sparkling in the sunlight for miles in sixteen sixty one or sixteen sixty two fathers gruber and d'orville on their return from peking to europe spent two months at lhasa waiting for a caravan and they report that the grand lama was worshipped as a true and living god that he received the title of the eternal and heavenly father and that he was believed to have risen from the dead no less than seven times he lived withdrawn from the business of this passing world in the recesses of his palace where seated aloft on a cushion and precious carpets he received the homage of his adorers in a chamber screened from the garish eye of day by the glittering of gold and silver and lit up by the blaze of a multitude of torches his worshippers with heads bowed to the earth attested their veneration by kissing his feet and even bribed the attendant lamas with great sums to give them a little of the natural secretions of his divine person which they either swallowed with their food or wore with their necks as an amulet that fortified them against the assaults of every element incarnate human gods in the chinese empire but he is by no means the only man who poses as a god in these regions a register of all the incarnate gods in the chinese empire is kept in the Yan or colonial office at peking the number of gods who have thus taken out a license is one hundred and sixty tibet is blessed with thirty of them northern mongolia rejoices in nineteen and southern mongolia basks in the sunshine of no less than fifty seven the chinese government with a paternal solicitude for the welfare of its subjects forbids the gods on the register to be reborn anywhere but in tibet they fear lest the birth of a god in mongolia should have serious political consequences by stirring the dormant patriotism and warlike spirit of the mongols who might 
rally round an ambitious native deity of royal lineage and seek to win for him at the point of the sword a temporal as well as a spiritual kingdom but besides these public or licensed gods there are a great many little private gods or unlicensed practitioners of divinity who work miracles and bless their people in holes and corners and of late years the chinese government has winked at the rebirth of these petty fogging deities outside tibet however once they are born the government keeps its eye on them as well as on the regular practitioners and if any of them misbehaves he is promptly degraded banished to a distant monastery or strictly forbidden ever to be born again in the flesh divine head of the taoist religion in china at the head of taoism the most numerous religious sect of china is a pope who goes by the name of the heavenly master and is believed to be an incarnation and representative on earth of the god of heaven his official title is chen yen or the true man when one of these pontiffs or incarnate deities departs this life his soul passes into a male member of his family the ancient house of chang in order to determine the chosen vessel all the male members of the clan assemble at the palace their names are engraved on tablets of lead the tablets are thrown into a vase full of water and the one which bears the name of the new incarnation floats on the surface the reputation and power of the pope are very great he lives in princely style at his palace of the dragon and tiger mountains in the province of Kiangxi, about twenty-five miles to the southwest of kuiki the road which is kept in good repair partly flat and provided at regular intervals with stone halls for the repose of weary pilgrims leads gradually upward through a bleak and barren district treeless and thinly peopled to the summit of a pass from which a beautiful prospect suddenly opens up of a wide and fertile valley watered by a little stream the scene charms the traveller all the more by contrast with the desert country which he has just traversed this is the beginning of the pope's patrimony which he holds from the emperor free of taxes the palace stands in the middle of a little town it is new and of no special interest having been rebuilt after the taipan rebellion for in their march northwards the rebels devastated the papal domains with great fury about a mile to the east of the palace lie the ruins of stately temples which also perished in the great rising and have only in part been rebuilt however the principal temple is well preserved it is dedicated to the god of heaven and contains a colossal image of that deity the papal residence naturally swarms with monks and priests of all ranks by the courts and gardens of the monasteries littered with heaps of broken bricks and stones and mouldering wood present a melancholy spectacle of decay and the ruinous state of the religious capital reflects the decline of the papacy the number of pilgrims has fallen off and with them the revenues of the holy see of old the pope ranked with the viceroys and the highest dignitaries of the empire now he is reduced to the level of a mandarin of the third class and wears a blue button instead of a red formerly he repaired every year to the imperial court at peking or elsewhere in order to procure peace and prosperity for the whole kingdom by means of his ceremonies and on his journey the gods and spirits were bound to come from every quarter to pay him homage unless he considerably hung out on his palanquin aboard with the notice you need not trouble to salute the people too gathered up the dust or mud from under his feet to preserve it as a priceless talisman nowadays if he goes to court at all it seems to be not oftener than once in three years and his services are seldom wanted except to ban the demons of plague but he still exercises the right of elevating deceased mandarins to the rank of little deities and as he receives a fee for every deification the ranks of the celestial hierarchy naturally receive many recruits he also draws considerable revenue from the manufacture and sale of red and green papers inscribed with cabalistic characters 
which are infallible safeguards against demons, disease, and calamities of every sort. Divine Kings of Peru From our survey of the religious position occupied by the king in rude societies, we may infer that the claim to divine and supernatural powers put forward by the monarchs of great historical empires like those of Egypt, China, Mexico, and Peru was not the simple outcome of inflated vanity or the empty expression of a grovelling adulation. It was merely a survival and extension of the old savage apotheosis of living kings. Thus, for example, as children of the sun, the Incas of Peru were revered like gods. They could do no wrong, and no one dreamed of offending against a person, honour, or property of the monarch, or of any of the royal race. Hence, too, the Incas did not, like most people, look on sickness as an evil. They considered it a messenger sent from their father the son to call them to come and rest with him in heaven. Therefore the usual words in which an Inca announced his approaching end were these. My father calls me to come and rest with him. They would not oppose their father's will by offering sacrifice for recovery, but openly declared that he had called them to his rest. Divine Rulers Among the Chibchans Issuing from the sultry valleys upon the lofty tableland of the Colombian Andes, the Spanish conquerors were astonished to find, in contrast to the savage hordes they had left in the sweltering jungles below, a people enjoying a fair degree of civilization, practicing agriculture, and living under a government which Humboldt has compared to the theocracies of Tibet and Japan. These were the Chibchas, Maiskas, or Moscas, divided into two kingdoms, with capitals at Bogota and Tunja but united apparently in spiritual allegiance to the high pontiff of Sacamozo or Inca. By a long and ascetic motive, this ghostly ruler was reputed to have acquired such sanctity that the waters and the rain obeyed him, and the weather depended on his will. Divine Kings of Mexico The Mexican kings at their ascension, as we have seen, took an oath that they would make the sun to shine, the clouds to give rain, the rivers to flow, and the earth to bring forth fruits in abundance. We are told that Montezuma, the last king of Mexico, was worshipped by his people as a god. Divinity of the Chinese Emperors In China, the emperor is not himself worshipped as a deity. He is supposed by his subjects to be the lord and master of all the gods. On the subject, a leading authority on Chinese religion observes, to no son of China would it ever occur to question the supreme authority wielded by the emperor and his proxies, the mandarins, not only over mankind but also of the gods. For the gods will share in our souls of intrinsically the same nature as those existing in human beings. Why then, simply because they have no human bodies, should they be placed above the emperor, who is no less than a son of heaven, that is to say, a magnitude second to none, but heaven or the power above whom there is none, who governs the universe and all that moves and exists therein? Such absurdity could not possibly be entertained by Chinese reason. So it is a first article of Chinese political creed that the emperor, as well as heaven, is lord and master of all the gods and delegates this dignity to his mandarins, each in his jurisdiction. With them then rests the decision which of the gods are entitled to receive the people's worship and which are not. It is the imperial government which defies disembodied souls of men and also divests them of the divine rank. Their worship, if established against its will or without its consent, can be exterminated at its pleasure, without revenge having to be feared from the side of the god for any such radical measure. For the power of even the mightiest and strongest god is a naught compared with that of the august celestial being, with whose will and under whose protection 
the sun reigns supreme over everything existing below the empyrean unless he forfeits his omnipotent support through neglect of his imperial duties divinity of the mikado as the emperor of china is believed to be a son of heaven so the emperor of japan the mikado is supposed to be an incarnation of the sun goddess a deity who rules the universe gods and men included once a year all the gods wait upon him and spend a month at his court during that month the name of which means without gods no one frequents the temples for they are believed to be deserted divinity of early babylonian kings the early babylonian kings from the time of sargon i to the fourth dynasty of ur or later claimed to be gods in their lifetime the monarchs of the fourth dynasty of ur in particular had temples built in their honour and set up their statues in various sanctuaries and commanded the people to sacrifice to them the eighth month was especially dedicated to the kings and sacrifices were offered to them at the new moon and on the fifteenth of each month again the parthian monarchs of the arsacid house styled themselves brothers of the sun and moon and worshipped as deities it was esteemed sacrilege to strike even a private member of the arsacid family in a brawl divinity of egyptian kings the kings of egypt were deified in their lifetime sacrifices were offered to them and their worship was celebrated in special temples and by special priests indeed the worship of the kings sometimes cast that of the gods into the shade thus in the reign of merenra the high official declared that he had built many holy places in order that the spirits of the king the ever-living merenra might be invoked more than all the gods it has never been doubted that the king claimed actual divinity he was the great god the golden horus the son of ra he claimed authority not only over egypt but over all lands and nations the whole world in its length and its breadth the east and the west the entire compass of the great circuit of the sun the sky and what is in it the earth and all that is upon it every creature walks upon two or upon four legs or that fly or flutter the whole world offers her productions to him whatever in fact might be asserted of the sun god was dogmatically predictable of the king of egypt his titles were directly derived from those of the sun god in the course of his existence we are told the king of egypt exhausted all the possible conceptions of divinity which the egyptians had framed for themselves a superhuman god by his birth and by his royal office he became the deified man after his death thus all that was known of the divine was summed up in him the divinity of the king was recognized in all the circumstances of the public life of the sovereign it was not enough to worship pharaoh in the temple beyond the limits of the sanctuary he remained the good god to whom all men owed a perpetual adoration the very name of his sovereign was sacred like his person people swore by his name as by that of the gods and he who took the oath in vain was punished in particular the king of egypt was identified with the great sun god ra the son of the sun decked with the solar crowns armed with the solar weapons gods and men adored him as ra defended him as ra from the attacks which menaced in him the divine being who in his human existence knew the glory and the dangers of being an incarnate son and the living image on earth of his father tum of heliopolis even the life of the gods depended on the divine life of the king gods and men it is said live by the words of his mouth o gods said the king before celebrating divine worship you are safe if i am safe your doubles are safe if my double is safe at the head of all living doubles all live if i live the king was addressed as lord of heaven lord of earth sun life of the whole world lord of time measurer of the sun's course 
Tum for men, Lord of well-being, Creator of the harvest, Maker and fashioner of mortals, Bestower of breath upon all men, Giver of life to all the hosts of gods, Pillar of heaven, Threshold of the earth, Wearer of the equipoise of both worlds, Lord of rich gifts, Increaser of the corn, and so forth. Yet as we should expect, the exalted powers thus ascribed to the king differ in degree rather than in kind from those which every Egyptian claimed for himself. Professor Tyrell observes that, as every good man at his death became more serious, as every one in danger or need could by the use of magic sentences assume the form of a deity, it is quite comprehensible how the king, not only after death, but already during his life, was placed on a level with the deity. Evolution of Sacred Kings Out of Magicians We have now completed our sketch, for it is no more than a sketch of the evolution of that sacred kingship which attained its highest form, its most absolute expression in the monarchies of Peru and Egypt, of China and Japan. Historically, the institution appears to have originated in the order of public magicians or medicine men. Logically, it rests on a mistaken deduction from the association of ideas. Men mistook the order of their ideas for the order of nature, and hence imagined that the control which they have, or seem to have, over their thoughts permitted them to exercise a corresponding control over things. The men who, for one reason or another, because of the strength or the weakness of their natural parts, were supposed to possess these magical powers in the highest degree, were gradually marked off from their fellows and became a separate class, who were destined to exercise a most far-reaching influence on the political, religious, and intellectual evolution of mankind. Social progress, as we know, consists mainly in a successive differentiation of functions or in simpler language division of labour. The work which in primitive society is done by all alike and by all equally ill or nearly so is gradually distributed among different classes of workers and executed more and more perfectly and so far as the products, material or immaterial, of this special labour are shared by all, the whole community benefits by the increasing specialisation. Magicians or Medicine Men, the oldest professional class now, magicians or medicine men appear to constitute the oldest artificial or professional class in the evolution of society, for sorcerers are found in every savage tribe known to us, and among the lowest savages, such as the Australian Aborigines, they are the only professional class that exists. As time goes on, and the process of differentiation continues, the order of medicine men is itself subdivided into such classes as the healers of disease, the makers of rain, and so forth, while the most powerful member of the order wins for himself a position as chief and gradually develops into a sacred king, his old magical functions failing more and more into the background have been exchanged for priestly or even divine duties, in proportion as magic is slowly ousted by religion. Still later, abdication is effected between the civil and the religious aspect of the kingship, the temporal power being committed to one man and the spiritual to another. Meanwhile, the magicians, who may be repressed but cannot be extirpated by their predominance religion, still addict themselves to their old occult arts in preference to the new ritual of sacrifice and prayer. And in time, the more sagacious of their number perceive the fallacy of magic and hit upon a more effective mode of manipulating the forces of nature for the good of man. In short, they abandon sorcery for science. I am far from affirming that the course of development has everywhere rigidly followed these lines, as doubtless varied greatly in different societies. I merely mean to indicate in the broadest outline what I conceive to have been its general trend. Regarded from the industrial point of view, the evolution has been from uniformity to diversity of function. Regarded from the political point of view, it has been from democracy to despotism. With the latter history of monarchy, especially with the decay of despotism and its displacement by forms of government better adapted to the higher needs of humanity, 
we are not concerned in this inquiry. Our theme is a growth, not the decay of a great and at its time beneficial institution. End of chapter 7 Incarnate Human Gods Part 2 End of section 16